The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Our scripture text this morning is taken from John chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. That's John 14, verses 12 to 14. Thank you, Danny. Thank you, Justin. Nice work helping us adjust from a busy or a smoky week to the refreshing air that is sweet worship. John 14 and verse 12 begins, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's ask the Lord Jesus to anoint our preacher this morning. Let's pray. Father, your word is our hope. So we thank you for the wonderful messages we have enjoyed for Pastor Bill's offerings the last three weeks and that you have answered our prayers for Pastor Brian, that he is up and and strong again. And we ask that you would speak through him to our Open ears and hearts. For your sake, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yes, thank you, Pastor Bill. You have a wonderful pastor, an excellent pastor in Pastor Bill, who visits you and prays with you and counsels you and is tender-hearted in his care for you and then preaches wonderfully. Last week, 2 Corinthians 4, my very favorite passage. I think I preached it a couple of times, and I told Bill, but not nearly as well as you did. That was great. So thank you, Bill. Well, a well-known believer wrote the following. He said, I became a Christian in September 1957. At that time, I had a girlfriend with whom I had been going steady, that's what they used to call it back then, uh, since 1952. She attended a different college, so I communicated to her by letter. It's like paper, and you mail it every, every day. As a result of my conversion, my letters were filled with spiritual matters and references to the newfound faith I was experiencing and to discoveries I was making from scripture. Unfortunately, she was not a believer and she thought I had taken leave of my senses. So a serious tension came into our relationship and in the winter of 1958, I spent hours, literally on my knees, praying for her redemption. 
Maybe some of you relate to this, whether it be a spouse or one of your children or a friend. There's no guarantee, there's no control that we have over the salvation of a loved one. But we're also told to ask. We're also told to pray. To persevere in prayer. To share the gospel that has the power to save. Not our words, but the Lord speaking through us. We may, be, we may feel powerless at times. But this is at the heart of the works that Jesus mentions in our text. Our passage is one that you've probably at one time or another scratched your head and been confused over and wondered, what is Jesus talking about? Or this may be one of those passages that causes you to feel very inadequate or maybe even guilty because, well, my works don't seem to be very great, let alone being compared to the works of Jesus. And yet Jesus promises that it seems like something is expected of me, expected of you. I'd like to begin by recognizing a key ingredient in Jesus' promise. Mostly we're going to focus on verse 12. And that key ingredient is faith or belief. Jesus makes this promise to whoever believes in him. Belief is a main theme in John's gospel. In fact, it's at the heart of John's purpose statement, saying that the reason he wrote this gospel is so that you may believe. So before we get into what it means for us to do greater works than Jesus, I want to be really clear about what it means to believe in Jesus. A lot of people will say, I believe in Jesus. But sometimes when you ask what they believe, you discover that their faith is not in the biblical Jesus. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? What was his purpose? What did he do? What did he say about himself? If we believe in a historical figure who died on a cross, but we're wrong about his nature and purpose and what he actually accomplished, can it be said that we truly believe in Jesus? If we say that we believe in Jesus, but we ignore his lordship, and we're actually living in rebellion to him, do we truly believe? Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, say they believe in Jesus. They'll talk about, sometimes it's confusing. They'll come to the door and they'll talk about grace. And that kind of shocks us. They'll talk about the cross. They'll talk about forgiveness of sins. And we're like, huh, that sounds like what I believe. But do they truly believe? Do they believe if they insist that Jesus is not the one true God? but only a God among many, or Satan's brother, or that he's Michael the archangel, or that he was a created being who came into existence, had no pre-existence prior to Mary's pregnancy. In this 14th chapter of John, Jesus tells us about himself. Jesus is concerned 
This is that context. Jesus is concerned for his disciples. He knows that he's going to the cross. He knows what's coming. He knows how they're going to be affected by this. And with this in mind, he tells them what they should believe. He tells them what they should believe about him. He tells us that he is the only Savior. Evidently, this is really important. Jesus begins this chapter making a connection between himself and the Father. He's leaving soon. He's going to be with the Father. He's going to prepare a place for those who believe in him. And he reassures us that he is coming again so that we may be with him. And in speaking of the way to the Father, Jesus answers Thomas with a very exclusive and bold Statement, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. At this most critical time, Jesus focuses on the truth that he is the only Savior. He is the way to God, not a way among many, but the way. And we know this to be an exclusive statement because Jesus goes on to say, no one. No one comes to the Father except through me. Any prophet or guru or teacher who says they are another way, another way of enlightenment, another way to God, one of many ways to God, this person is a deceiver. They are a liar. If you believe them, Let's just be clear. If you believe stuff like that, then you don't believe Jesus. It's one or the other. It cannot be both. Jesus didn't give us that option. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, our only options are to see Jesus as either a lunatic, babbling a bunch of nonsense, or he's an evil deceiver who's ruined people's lives with an intentional lie or he's telling the truth about himself, and we should fall to our knees and worship him. If you're open to another path to God, then let's be clear. You do not believe in Jesus. Jesus is that clear. And this is not a popular statement in our pluralistic society. You may be yelled at. You may be villainized by believing this, but Jesus didn't give us any other option. This is what it means to believe in him. This is what it means to be a Christian. Connected to this, Jesus says he is the truth. And the implication of this is that there is, there actually is truth. We have to think about things like this nowadays. There is a definition of right and wrong. There is a standard. There is a judge. There is one to whom we will give an account. And related to this, let me just say that no Christian should ever use the phrase, my truth or their truth, which is so popular today because what this implies is that Truth is relative, that there is no standard to judge and correct what we may think is true. And ultimately, it says that we are the ones who define truth 
And we're not accountable to anyone, let alone God. Recently on a news story concerning Bill Cosby and his release, uh, the reporter spoke positively concerning Cosby's release while also speaking positively about his accusers telling their truth. And I just thought, what on earth are you talking about? God knows the truth, but what a gutless, meaningless story given by this reporter. Someone's been wronged. Who is it? Is it Cosby or is it his accusers? Do we care about justice? Are we compassionate to victims? Do we desire to prevent wrongs and protect people from harm? If so, there must be true truth. There must be a standard that exposes someone's version of the truth as a lie or not lining up with reality. These expressions of relative truth eliminate law, morality, accountability, and if you believe in relative truth, then at least, if you believe in relative truth, then at least be logical and recognize that Jesus' death was pointless. What's the point of dying for people's sins if there's no absolute standard to define sin? What is justice? What's the point of forgiveness if we can hide behind our version of our truth? But if you believe in Jesus, then you must believe that he is the truth, not a truth, but the very source of truth, the one who defines all truth. And therefore, as Scripture says, the one, Jesus, the one who will justly judge the living and the dead. Jesus is the way, the truth, and because he is God, he is the life. He is the source of all life. He is the creator. Concerning Jesus, Paul wrote, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. He's saying this concerning Jesus. All things were created through him and for him. Do you believe this? Do you believe in Jesus? If you only believe he is a way or a truth or an example for how we should live, if you don't believe that he is the very God who created you and sustains your every breath, then your soul is in great danger. And your heart should be troubled because you do not believe in God. You do not believe in Jesus. Another belief that Jesus teaches is that he is one with the Father. If you truly believe in God, then you will believe in Jesus. The Jew who says he believes in God and yet rejects Jesus as Messiah does not actually even believe in God. Because Jesus said, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. There is one God. And yet the Bible describes the Father as God, the Son as God, and the Holy Spirit as God. Perfect unity of the same mind, substance, and being. God is one. 
He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So believing in Jesus involves believing in his unity with the Father, which is related to the doctrine of the Trinity. Hmm. There's a lot lot here about believing in Jesus. The last area that, there's a lot, but the last area in this 14th chapter of John that I want to point out is Jesus is sovereign. Jesus has a plan. He tells his disciples that he's going to the Father's house to prepare a place for us and that he's coming again so that we might be with him. Jesus is in control of what happens in his death, after his death, where he's going, what he'll be doing. He's in control of our futures. He's preparing a place for us, and he's coming again for us with absolute certainty. So if we truly believe in Jesus, then we believe in the exclusivity of Jesus as Savior, the deity of Jesus and the doctrine of the Trinity, and we believe that Jesus is sovereign and coming again. But let me just say that it's one thing, saying all of that, I want to be clear, it's one thing to know these truths, and it's entirely another thing to deny them. And the reason I say this, the importance of saying this, there are essentials that we must believe as Christians. But at the same time, we are not saved by our accurate, precise theological knowledge. No, we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. And the reason that I bring it up is that some people's faith may be very simple. Some people's biblical knowledge might be very, very limited. What about the mentally challenged? What about the small child who believes the only thing they know, which is Jesus died on the cross so that I can be forgiven of my sins? And they receive this gift and love Jesus. If they have no concept, no understanding of important theological truths, would we say that they're not saved? Not until they know a little bit more? No. Faith can be a very simple trust and love of Jesus. And faith, like any human relationship, will also want want to grow, want to get to know the person that we love. And so if we have that ability and we love Jesus, of course we're going to want to know what he says about himself and grow in our understanding and knowledge and love for him. So it's one thing to not know some very important truths about Jesus, and another thing altogether to know these important truths and reject them. Knowing what Jesus said and rejecting his claims, that is unbelief. But if you truly believe in Jesus as your Savior, then Jesus makes a pretty remarkable statement A pretty remarkable promise here in this 12th verse. He says, if you believe in Jesus, this is what he says to you. Truly, truly, getting your attention. This is really important. I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Wow. (laughs) Incredible. And somewhat confusing. 
I mean, Jesus did some pretty amazing things, right? Anyone here, show of hands, uh, make the blind to see recently? Um, the lame to walk? No? Feed 5,000 with uh, five loaves of bread and two fish? Calm a storm by telling it to be quiet? Raise the dead? No? Anyone? Man, what is wrong with you people? What's wrong with me? So if we're not doing these things, and Jesus promised we'd do greater works than him, how do we understand this? What is he talking about? Because Jesus is the truth. He can't fail in what he promises. Well, there are two options in understanding what he's talking about. One, which is what we tend to assume, is that Jesus is talking about physical miracles. And if so, then we either need to limit who he's talking about, or we need to give an explanation for our horrible failure. Some will explain the failure by putting the emphasis on faith or belief. They'll conclude that the reason that we're not doing these great miracles is that we don't believe enough. Your faith is lacking. And a simple answer, think about this, a simple answer to this wrong-headed approach is to say, okay, let's think logically about this. Well, if the strength of faith is the key to doing miracles, right? If the strength of faith is the key to doing miracles, and Jesus says that we'll do greater works than he, then wouldn't it be necessary for us to have a greater faith than Jesus? Which is clearly impossible. Also, what does Jesus actually say? He doesn't say anyone who has a sufficient degree of faith or anyone who has a really intense faith. No, he simply says, whoever believes in me, do you believe in Jesus? Then he's talking to you. He's talking to all Christians and not just those with super strong faith. Another way that people have understood this promise is to limit it to the apostles. Because the the apostles actually did do some physical miracles. But did they match, let alone exceed the physical miracles of Jesus? No. Again, what did Jesus actually say? Not some with a really strong faith, but whoever believes in me. Jesus does not limit the promise to the apostles. He says, whoever believes. Is that you, 21st century believer? Do you believe in Jesus? Then the promise is clearly for you. Okay, but are we doing greater works than Jesus? What did he mean? Well, what we should rule out is that he's talking about physical miracles because there's no way to make any sense of it. There's no way that promise can be true if he's talking about physical miracles. If our expectation is to do physical miracles, which would be really cool to 
you know, hit someone in the head and greater miracles than Jesus, then all, including the apostles, have failed. And Jesus has failed in his promise. And if Jesus truly is who he said he is, then this is an impossibility. So what did he mean? There's a clue for us in Luke 10, where we read about the 72 disciples who returned from their first successful preaching mission, and we read that they returned, the disciples returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. In other words, they were really excited that they could do a miracle of casting out demons. But what was Jesus' reply? Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus makes an actual comparison between physical miracles and the spiritual miracle of a person's conversion. When a person is moved from death to eternal life, where a heart of stone is said to be transformed into a heart of flesh, where the spiritually blind are made to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, this is greater. And we know this to be true. After all, what would you rather have? A physical resurrection like Lazarus that lasts a few years or decades and then you die again? Or a spiritual resurrection, a new birth that leads to a physical resurrection when you get a new body that will never die forever. What would you rather have? What's greater? And so, you know, I I just think I'm so grateful to God um, because he performed a physical miracle in my life. He did... um, a miraculous physical healing with my daughter, Devin. Complete kidney failure, three and a half years on dialysis, no hope of a transplant. And six years ago, he brought her kidneys back to life, and she has no need of dialysis. Incredible. Praise God. Physical miracle. But what's greater? A temporary physical healing or being born again, believing in Jesus, having everlasting life. I'll take that for my daughter way much over a physical healing. When Jesus walked the face of this earth, what was his chief aim? It was to reveal, to glorify the Father. And after three and a half years of ministry, Jesus said goodbye to about 500 disciples. But 50 days later, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon the 11 remaining disciples, giving them a powerful witness where they preached the gospel. And what was the result? Think about it. it. Jesus, 500 disciples, three and a half years, one day at Pentecost, 3,000 come to faith in Christ. 
more people's names were written in the book of heaven on a single day than over three and a half years of our Lord's ministry. This is an example of what Jesus meant. Greater works we will do. I like what Harry Ironside wrote. He said, when you realize that when Jesus left this scene, committing his gospel to a little group of 11 men in order that they might carry it to the ends of the earth, at that time, the whole world, with the exception of a few in Israel, was lost in the darkness of heathenism. But in 300 years, Christianity closed nearly all the temples of the heathen Roman Empire and numbered its converts by millions. These were the greater works. And down through the centuries, he still carries on this ministry. If you have faith in Jesus, this promise applies to you. And it doesn't mean that you're going to be some super evangelist. But what it does mean is that the use of your Holy Spirit-empowered gifts are great. They are great for the kingdom of God. People get all excited about self-proclaimed healers and miracle workers, and they'll take trips down to Reading and woo! Come on! And yet, according to Jesus, the use of your spiritual gifts a life that is a witness to the glory of God, a testimony shared that God uses to open the spiritual eyes of someone. These are greater than any physical miracle. Don't be like the disciples who are all excited about casting out demons when a person's name is being written in the book of heaven. That is infinitely greater. And this being the case, Here are some great works that we should be doing. So not just being aware of it. You know, we step out in faith. We pray and we do. We make ourselves available. We follow the Lord. So here's some things that I want to suggest to you. First, and this has been our main emphasis, we must have faith in Jesus. You know, trust the promise that he's given you. We must believe who he claimed to be, the good news of his gospel, that he is the only Savior, he is the only Son of God, the only way to the Father. He is true truth. He is the source of life. This is at the heart of Jesus' promise, and this this is what we need to be sharing with people. Second, we must pray. Prayer is a means. It is an instrument that God uses to accomplish his will. So keep praying for the lost loved one. Don't give up. Pray for, do you pray for opportunities just at the start of the day? Lord, I feel guilty. I haven't been really talking to my neighbors. Give me an opportunity and then get out of the house. Pray for opportunities to glorify God, to speak of him, to be a witness, to love people in the name of Jesus. Spend time in prayer. Do you feel guilty about not sharing the gospel, not loving your neighbor? Well, are you praying about it? Are you actually asking God for those opportunities and stepping out in faith? We must pray. Third, Jesus speaks of a love 
for him that's expressed in obedience. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If we are to do great works for God's glory, it begins with faith that leads to love. And loving Jesus means that we take seriously our commitment to him, that we obey him. Fourth, we must humbly rely upon the Spirit. Jesus says in verses 16 and 17, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit is involved in all of this. We can't believe without the Spirit. The reason you have faith is because of the work of the Spirit regenerating you. We can't pray without the Spirit, in an effective way at least. We can't can't even love and obey without the Spirit. If Jesus says in verse 10, the words that I say to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. If this is true of Jesus, then how much more of us if we truly are doing the work of Jesus? Shouldn't we likewise say the words that we speak, we do not speak on our own, but the Spirit who dwells in us does the work? That's my prayer every time before I preach, Lord, My words are nothing. Your spirit has to speak. Hear the promise. Hear the calling of Jesus and what he intends for you. To do greater works in your sharing of the gospel, in your praying, in your obedient witness, in your love for one another. All empowered by the spirit, building God's kingdom for his glory. We need to believe the promises and the commission of Jesus. Don't look at yourself and say, well, you know, that's nice, but nothing I can really do. No, instead we need to recognize that it is by the grace of God that we will do these things, that we will do these works, greater works than Jesus's earthly ministry through his strength. It's him working through us. That well-known believer who described writing to his girlfriend and going to his knees in prayer, he went on to write this. He said, my girlfriend decided to go home for a weekend, so we arranged that she would take a bus for her college, um, from her college to my campus and spend a day there, and then I would drive her home the following morning. The day that she came, I spent the entire morning on my knees. And when she arrived, we went to a Bible study. The ministry of Christ and the significance of the cross were presented to her in a way that caused the scales to fall from her eyes, and she came to a saving knowledge of Christ. The next day, my wife-to-be told me that she woke up every hour that night asking herself, is it still there? Do I still have it? Being assured that she did, she was able to go back to sleep. She said to me with great excitement, R.C., 
Now I know who the Holy Spirit is. We had been raised in the same church and had heard the liturgy in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, but we had no idea about the person and work of God, the Holy Spirit, until we were converted under his power. This is a greater miracle than any physical healing. And Jesus says that we, that those who believe in him, will do these greater works. And it's because of him. It's because of who he is. It's because of his life, death, and resurrection. And it's because he went to the Father and sent us the Holy Spirit who empowers us to do as he commands. Let's believe him in faith. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your perfect plan. We thank you for the work of Jesus, for who he is and that you have given us to him, that you have enabled us to truly see and believe in him. We pray for loved ones who do not see, who do not believe, and we ask that you would open their eyes to your glory in the face of Jesus. And open our eyes to your calling, Lord. Help us to speak, to share the gospel, to have lives that are a witness to you, to persevere in prayer, dependent upon the Holy Spirit in all things. Jesus, you are God, and so we praise you. We know the Father because of you. We believe in you. We worship you as the way, the truth, and the life. For it is in you that we live and move and have our being. Lord, cause us to hear and believe so that we act upon what you've called us to do. Give us opportunities. Remind us to pray for these. And give us a a greater desire to go and be available for your work. Lord, help us to know the gospel, to love the gospel, and to therefore share it with joy and loving concern. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.